The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Glad to be here on campus. It's very familiar to me. This is my day job. Um, And um, we'll just jump right in. Ecclesiastes is like the blues of the Bible, right? And it's in the same way, it's just like cleansing. It's so honest, even kind of scary sometimes. Like it's so honest and mysterious. And if you sum up like the the book of Ecclesiastes, I like Stafford Wright. J. Stafford Wright is um, an Old Testament scholar. And he said that life has lost the key to itself. I just love that. And he said, life has lost the key to itself, and that's what Ecclesiastes is about, and that God holds the key, and he's the locksmith, and he's not going to give it to you. And that trying to get the key is like shepherding the wind, vanity of vanities, trying to unlock it all. So reading the Bible, reading that passage back from like Romans 8, 28, we look and say, like, life has lost the key to itself, and God works all things together for good for those who love and are called according to your purpose, right? Like, Life is vanity of vanities, it's vapor and vapor, it's hard, it's frustrating, but like there's hope and God is in control of everything. And so you have these two like truths right here, right next to them. Life is hard and miserable and tragic sometimes, and that God is good and somehow he's going to work it all together. But here's where I live. Like let me just summarize, give you a picture of just like the real world. It's, It's the BP gas station. Uh, it, it, it's, it's three days ago and I've got my card in the, in the thing, in the pump. And it's asking me like six times, is this a debit card? No, it is not a debit card in, right? No, it's not a debit card. And then after like the, the sixth time it says like, see cashier. I don't want to see the cashier. This is, that's so eighties to see the cashier. I am a practical atheist at the gas pump. Like, I love Ecclesiastes, I love scripture, I love theology, but that like, those, those are the moments that I lose all my theology and I'm a fool. You see, it's in the weeds. See, Koheleth, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, he gets in the weeds here. He gets down to where we really live. Not when we're all like at church, but when you really, really live is where we ask the question, am I living like a fool or am I living wise? Um, uh, Walker Percy wrote a book called The Last Gentleman. 
And I'll paraphrase, this is, and this sort of sums up our sermon today. It's not the big things in life that get me. You know, like the wars and rumors of wars and that kind of stuff. He says, I'm just trying to live from one ordinary minute to the next on a Wednesday afternoon. That's the issue of wisdom and folly. So we're going to look at first, what does it mean to be a fool Wednesday afternoon, BP station? And then what does it mean to be wise Wednesday afternoon, BP station? And then like whatever your gas station is, because that's the thing that's got your number. It's where you actually live. And so let's look at folly and wisdom. So the fool in the Bible, the first one's folly. The fool in the Bible is synonymous with the prideful, the arrogant, the boastful. It's like the two sides of the same coin. Because the fool in the Old Testament is someone who says there is no God. And so he has to act like he's his own God. And therefore, life is up to him to make it work and then to control. And so he says, that's folly. Folly is believing that you're God and that you're in control. Um, and so here's what it looks like. There's three things. That foolishness manifests itself in impatience, rage, and escapism. Impatience, rage, and escapism. A very, very specific kind of escapism, by the way. So folly means that we have to be our own gods and we have to make life work on our own terms, right? And that's like kind of what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. That's what happened to me at the BP station. Um, impatience. Here's what he's saying. The end of something is better than the beginning of something. Because it's easy to start things, it's really hard to finish things. I mean, how many books, are you like me, how many books do you have with like, like on your shelves with, with bookmarks in the first chapter? Or like I get a journal every Christmas. And I have, I'm ashamed how many journals I have that like says like January 3rd. And that's it. Just January 3rd. And what he's saying is, when you forget that there's a God and you have to become your own God, you quit. Because life is just hard. It's, hard. it's hard to keep doing things. It's just hard to like keep showing up. And it's the little irritations, the little stressors, it's the little stuff that sink your boat. It's almost like we're braced and prepared for the big things a lot of times and we kind of, we go into sort of crisis mode and we handle those things like once or twice in your life. There's a saying that's uh, attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if he said it or not, so don't email me. But he said, there've been some terrible things in my life, most of which never happened. He said, in other words, like most of the big things in my life, they never actually occurred. I just worried about them. And so you're almost brace ready, but what actually gets you are the little bitty irritations, the little problems in your life that make you finally just want to cash in. It's like the first day of school. Um, I always had this dream, even I remember in elementary school, that I had my, that was, the, that was the only day that all my crayons were in the box, right? They were all there, even like the magenta. I had magenta on the first day of school, Right? But after that, the crowns were broken, they were lost, the scissors, the glue stick, and it's just sort of like a, a summary of my life that like I can't make things work. And so I have this tendency, and maybe you do, just like the rest of humanity, that when things get hard, you want to quit. Like that's why people quit marriage. 
It's because their expectations were like, this person is going to complete me, right? And then, like, you are married. And it's hard, and like, they hurt your feelings. And, and you're a jerk. Like, you realize, this is what people say after they get married, like, I didn't realize how selfish I was. And I was like, well, welcome to the human race. And you see your sin, you see your sin, you see, you see how broken you are, you just want to quit, you want to push it away. And so impatience is a form of folly that's related to the second thing, rage. Look at verse 9. So he says, don't be impatient, it's foolish to be impatient. But then he says, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It's rage. And, and here's a, one scholar's definition of rage. The haughty indignation that a proud person feels when things don't go their way. That's pride. Because you believe that you could manage things much more satisfactorily than God can. But here's that, what that practically looks like. Someone has hurt your feelings. You've been rejected. A colleague gets ahead of you. Your son, your daughter says something that scares you. In traffic, right? Hillsborough Road at 5 p.m. Starbucks and you ordered ahead of time on the app and they still don't have your drink ready? And there are all these endless little scenarios where we're practical atheists and instead of feeling sad, instead of dealing with the tragedy that we're not in control, what we do is rage. We seethe. We seethe on the person that's next to us. We seethe on a spouse. We seethe on our friends. And you start fearing that you're losing something. You're losing your life or your promotion or your reputation or your place at Ben and Jerry's on free cone day. And that fear, instead of wanting to feel it, you just want to rage and give. Here's rage is the illusion that we're in control. Now it's delicious just for a little while. Rage is like one writer said, rage is the poison that you drink trying to kill someone else. And here's what, here's one of the most evident parts of rage. I think one of the biggest fruits of rage, a suicide. I got that word from a counselor years ago. He said a suicide. What is a suicide? It's when you kill people with the worst assumptions about them. And here's where we experience that, texting. Um, I remember in Memphis, one, when I was living in Memphis, one uh, particular scenario, I just texted somebody and I said, hey, wanna hang? Hey, how's it going? Wanna hang? That's a huge moment for me to even ask someone that they want to hang. And it was real casual, like, hey, wanna hang out? I didn't say I miss you, right? Which have been way vulnerable, because I did, but I just wanna hang. And I didn't get the response. I didn't even get like the little dot, dot, dot. I'm about to write something back to you. And then here's what, what I did. And maybe you've done this. You, you check your phone 120 times in half an hour. Waiting for the beloved text to arrive. And you check it when you're having coffee with your daughter at Panera. Right? So you're totally not present with her. And then something happens 
Something happens to me, it, it, it's like, oh, this has always been about me. You know, there's something wrong with me. I, come, I must come across a certain way. And then I say, no, wait a second, it's all about them. And then as the day goes on, I get madder and madder and madder and more seething until finally I thought, you're dead to me. You know, just because they didn't respond to your let's hang text, you're dead to me. They were never real friends anyway. You know what? I'll tell my wife, they're phonies. She's like, what are you talking about? So-and-so didn't text me back. Oh, so they're phonies now. Yes. I'll delete their name. I'll delete the thread. They are dead to me. It's over. And then finally, I get this text from a phone number without a name attached to it. Hey, sorry, I've been crazy busy all day. Can't wait to hang. Do you ever have that feeling? That's the feeling of folly. A suicide, rage. Refusing to feel sad, refusing to feel like you're not in control. And so then you have to escape. You have to numb it. You have to numb it. And here's how they write it. And Ecclesiastes gives us a lot of different ways of numbing it. Here's, one, here's, here's the one in particular here. He talks about in verse 10, why were the former days better than these? That's what happens when you're impatient and you rage. Like, you know, the past was just better. Why were the former days better than these? He says, that's, that's foolish. That's not from wisdom that you ask this. In the words of Bono from God part two, you can glorify the past till the future dries up. That is, looking back at your past with a crippling nostalgia back when you were pretty, back when you were cool, back when we were the big thing. Or maybe it's like, I remember back when Cokes were a nickel kind of thing. Why can't things be like they used to be? Or those millennials, you hear your parents say, oh, millennials, right? You know that like every, that's not new. Every generation is like saying that about every other generation. Here's what it is. It's a way of escaping from the tragic reality right in front of you. And Ecclesiastes is saying, face it. It's a way of escaping into a past. Okay, so we pick on older people. Uh, let's pick on younger people. You have a different form of nostalgia. I don't know if you can call it that, but what you have is a, a he, this is me too, a healing fantasy where one day your life is gonna work, your work and your family and the house and all those different things. And that's like what, what like Garden and Gun, that's the reason there is a, a magazine called Garden and Gun. Because it's like, here's, for, for me, like here's a life that you probably won't ever have, but man, don't you want it? And here's some people that do, sorry. And it's like, oh, and you got, you got like the, the backyard with the, with the Christmas lights on it. And everyone looks so cool and happy. It's a way of escaping. Here's the thing. We live in a ruined paradise. It's paradise. But it's ruined. It's sublime. It's tragic. That's why Ecclesiastes is so good. Vapor doesn't mean it's meaningless. It means it's ephemeral. It means it's fleeting. It means that you try to hold on to it. So the life that you have. Now the life face on life's terms is the beginning of wisdom. So let's look at our second point. Wisdom. 
Look at verse 12. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. That's really, here's the thing. It's kind of like, like it's, it's protection. There's security in wisdom. And the advantage of knowledge is, the, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So, if pride is the heart of folly, humility is the beginning of wisdom. Or as Ecclesiastes will say, the fear of God is the beginning. The soil that wisdom grows is humility. And what is humility? I am not God. And I am not in control. And so little by little, I'm going to trust someone outside of me who is in control and who loves me. And so you, you develop a lens to look at life in this ruined paradise and you begin to be someone who leans into the reality rather than away from it. Here, what does that mean? What does that look like? The first question you have to ask is, if you're gonna trust God, what is your God like? It's the most basic question I ask students. Like at least half or more of my students are irreligious or not Christian. And so they'll come to me and they'll say like, Richie, I, I need to, I'm, I'm trying to stop drinking so much or I'm trying to stop doing this drug or I'm trying to stop doing those thi- this, these things. Most of my students, that's where they are. And so how do I stop doing those things? And they say, I think God could help. And I was like, okay, well, what's your God like? And they'll, they'll describe someone who's omniscient. Like he's, he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent to some degree, like he's powerful and he's always mad at them and he's stern and he's cold and he sees them when they're sleeping and he knows when they're awake. <laughs> like here's the thing that most of them describe, that's functionally at the BP station, here's the thing, functionally what we describe is a stern, cold Santa Claus who's not even jolly, at least Santa's jolly. And here's what I'll say to him. Your drug's way better than me and Santa. You gotta choose something, man. And like, that girl, that guy, it's, it's way more attractive. Your, your God is profoundly unattractive. And I'll say things like that. I'm an atheist with that God too. Because it's not the God of the Bible. What is the God? You see, it forces you a really important question. If you're gonna trust this God, what do you think he's like, honestly? Michael Reeves, who's had a huge impact on me. Go listen to everything and read everything he's done. He's a theologian from Great Britain, president of Union Seminary. He says, what is the essence of God? He's a loving father. Before he created the world, he was eternally loving his son through the spirit. That's who he is, the essence of God. Before he ever gave the law, he was a father. Before there was any wrath in God, he said, wrath is new. Wrath came because of sin. Because he hates the destruction of what he loves. Who has God always been? Love. Not lonely. Love. Who is he ultimately like? God is exactly like Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the eternal, steadfast, everlasting love of God in space, time, and history with skin on. 
and he's gentle. And he's lowly of heart. You know what that means, lowly of heart? That's like antiquated language for him. He's not a snob. He was the most unintimidating man that ever lived. He was the most approachable man that ever lived. And he's the king of the world. And he was born in a, and they put him in a dog bowl. That was, his, that was a manger. And he's so radically available. And he's so gentle. And he's so loving. And he let people get all their dirt and their filth on him. And he died naked as a criminal. The man who never sinned one time. Naked as a criminal in front of his mother on a trash heap. That's the God that we're being called to trust. And so you know what happens? The BP station, the weeds of life, humble trust in that kind of God, your life becomes hopeful in the BP station, in the weeds. And what is hope? Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor, Hebrews 6, in Jesus. Hope is something that does not let us down because here's what that means. No matter how sad your reality is, no matter how tragic, no matter how gut-wrenching, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus wins every time. No matter how dark the road is, Jesus wins. And so you can face the tragedy like Jesus did outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he wept. In the words of M. Ward from Monsters of Folk, he says, it takes a lot of hope to grieve. And some of us need to grieve the fact that our lives haven't turned out the way we want them. Some of us need to grieve how jacked up we are. Some of us need to grieve that your marriage isn't what you want it to be. Some of you need to just grieve and face the reality that the card doesn't work. Because only if you grieve, only then can you laugh. Only then can you celebrate. Only then can you live in a ruined paradise with songs in your heart. Because the honeysuckle is coming into the ruined paradise. And every spring it comes, you know that. I used to love to run in Memphis on this long thing called the Green Line. Uh, green Line, it was, we would run, and in the thick of May, the honeysuckle is just, it's Edenic. And I remember running and just experiencing that early in the morning, it's just humid. Memphis is just humid and just the heavy air and the smell of the honeysuckle. But then here's what happens. About a mile into my run, sewage. Every single time it was sewage. Here's the thing. We live in a world of honeysuckle and sewage. So you know what that means? Same song from Bono, you gotta kick the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Regardless of what you do, you gotta kick the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Everywhere we see it, because Jesus wins, that's hope. Consider the work of God. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. That's the gospel. Consider the work of God. You can't make straight what God has made crooked. He doesn't mean that in a negative sense. And he said, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Joyful. Joyful in a world you can't control. What is joy? Tim Keller calls it a spiritual buoyancy. Buoyancy. You can't sink it. Because you can be joyful and sad at the same time. There's a lot of sadness. I got a lot of sadness. 
You can be joyful and sad. You know why? Because Jesus told what his disciples what to rejoice in. They were coming back after this amazing ministry. They were casting out demons and all these amazing things. They were fishermen and like tax collectors. And now they're casting out demons. They come back and say, Jesus, we're crushing it. And he says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <laughs> Past perfect tense are written. Christian, you're going to say, I have no idea what you're facing. I have no idea what you've been through. I have no idea what things have been done to you or how tragic your life is. But if you just throw yourself at the, at the, at the Savior in the manger, your name is written right now in heaven. Nothing can erase it. Kick the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Because one day the darkness is going to pierce the dark. One day the light's going to pierce the darkness. So that's a joy, right? Joy. I can be sad because this is true. And so you can face, you can go to BP. And here's the thing. Be less reactive. So instead of impatience and rage, we can now be people that are going like, wow, this thing doesn't work again. I got to go see the cashier. What's up, dude? I'm totally late. And you buy some chocolate milk. And you learn to rejoice. And because here's the thing. You do that or you rage. Pick your poison. Pick the resurrected one. And here's the final thing I'll leave with you. It's the word wonder. The reason I'm a Christian is because I have an imagination. Not imaginary. Imagination. And it's given to me by God. And you have one too. Because you want to live in paradise. Because you are hardwired for it. Why do you think you go to the beach every single year and just stare at the Gulf of Mexico? So you want to go home. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, in the, in the Man Who Was Thursday, there's this great line. He said, shall I tell you the secret of the whole world? It's that we see the back of the world now. And it looks brutal. That's not a tree. That's the back of a tree. That's not a cloud. That's the back of the cloud. He said the world is stooping and hiding its face. If we could only get round front. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is reality around front. The prototype of the end of the age paradise without any sewage I'll close with the words of Rankin Wilborn pastor from Los Angeles becoming a Christian means you begin to see your life from God's point of view you not only see yourself differently you see others differently in the world we live in gradually more and more the world becomes enchanted again Coming to see the world this way includes the movies we see and the songs we sing, the way you talk to the checkout clerk, the way you do your job on a Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. All this takes a transformed imagination. That's wisdom. A transformed imagination fired by God's spirit but trained over time to see all things charged with God's grandeur. May God give us wisdom. James 1 says, if you lack it, ask him, and your Father will give it to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and ask that you would become real to us by the Spirit, 
We are distracted and broken, but you love to fix broken things. Give us hope and joy and wonder so we can be people that kick the darkness till it bleeds daylight. In Jesus' name, amen.